Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, a paper by Dr. John Cooper of the University of York. Dr. Cooper's paper was entitled Reformation, Culture and Identity in 16th Century England and was given as part of the New Directions and Research in Early Modern Ireland workshop. Well, I'm, uh, I'm honoured to be here. Um, I must confess that when I was invited um, to address a distinguished group of historians of early modern Ireland, um, I wondered if there'd been some mix-up um, like the young lecturer, Perce McGarrigal, in David Lodge's academic novel, Small World, who gets a job at University College Limerick because the appointment letter was accidentally sent to him rather than somebody else with the same name. But reading on in Mark's message, I realised that in the sort of ecumenical spirit of this afternoon's proceedings, an English perspective was being asked for. And I'm delighted to be able to attempt to fill that brief, uh, not least because I've recently been thinking about Ireland in the context of a book on Francis Walsingham, which I'm currently, thanks be to God, completing. Um, I've got two aims in this talk. Um, First of all, I'd like to look briefly at the Reformation in two English regions. Uh, Mark's original invitation um, suggested that I speak about Cornwall and the West Country, um, which was one of the subjects of my doctorate, Um, Now, Cornwall is very interesting, but half an hour or so just on that might possibly test your patience. Um, So I'm going to add Yorkshire for the purposes of comparison, um, which also had a strong regional culture, which the Reformation hit very hard. Secondly, I'd like to pick up the theme of this workshop, New Directions, and apply it back to England. I'll be identifying some of the significant recent trends in the historiography of religion, and also suggesting reasons why research might have moved in those directions rather than others. Okay, so to start off, two English regions. What follows isn't claiming to be in any way comprehensive or even particularly systematic. It's merely illustrative of the relationship between the Reformation culture and identity in two English regions with which I'm familiar, partly because I grew up in one and I'm now living and working in the other one. And my first case study is Cornwall, at the end of England's southwestern peninsula, jutting out into the Atlantic. Some of you may have been taken there for bucket and spade holidays as children. Um, If you haven't been to Cornwall, then imagine Kinsale blown up into an entire county, and that's more or less what we're talking about. Cornwall is pretty indisputably within England. It's been an English county for the purposes of administration, taxation and justice since the Middle Ages, but whether it could be described as English is more controversial. Now today, this distinctiveness is expressed in various ways, tourism and marketing being the most obvious. Souvenir flags of Cornwall and books of Cornish recipes and ghost stories and phrase books for a Cornish language which effectively died out in the 18th century. Celtic Cornwall is a powerful brand it's economically beneficial to project that sense of difference back into the past. Now that Cornwall has its own university, just about, it's actually run from Exeter, which of course is in Devon, the same might be said for academic funding. If Cornwall really is fundamentally different from England, then the deep roots of that difference clearly need to be understood. 
The Reformation is a very important part of the Cornish story because it's generally been seen as sounding the death knell for a distinctive local culture. Well, why should that be the case? Religion in pre-Reformation Cornwall had features that make it look decidedly different from other English counties. For one thing, its relationship to the landscape is very striking. It's visible in the veneration of holy sites, sacred trees, stone chairs where saints sat, holy wells which they brought into being, hills where their heads were cut off, only for them to walk over and pick them up again. It makes sense to look at religion in pre-Reformation Cornwall in the context of Ireland and Wales and Brittany. And it's no accident that the early saints who evangelised Cornwall came from those places or headed on there after converting the pagan Cornish, floating over the Channel or the Irish Sea on a leaf or a millstone. The veneration of local Celtic saints was devastated by a Protestant Reformation which was particularly unsympathetic to this kind of popular religion. If the Roman Church had sometimes been uneasy about the orthodoxy of local cults of devotion with their roots in Celtic monastic Christianity, there was absolutely no place for St. Petroc or St. Piran or St. Mariasek under the new Protestant dispensation. There was no equivalent in Cornwall of the pilgrimage of grace rising against Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries in Yorkshire and the north of England, probably because monasticism was not a strong feature of the church in Cornwall. But rebellion did come on a massive scale in 1549, when Edward VI's religious injunctions finally forbade the veneration of saints which weren't calendared in the English Book of Common Prayer and demanded that subjects pray for the king and the council instead. Well, we have a useful witness to the impact of these measures. And this is a man named Nicholas Roscarrick. Roscarrick was a Catholic recusant who compiled a biographical dictionary of the saints um, of England and Wales in the early 17th century. Now, as a Cornishman, he was particularly interested in stories about local holy men and women, but he sometimes found it hard to collect the traces of devotional cults which seemed to have been flourishing up to the eve of the Reformation. Now, one of the sources um, I used in my doctorate was a late medieval saint's play in the Cornish language, uh, the life of the aforementioned St. Mary Azek of Camborne, who has now uh, returned to the uh, splendid obscurity from which he came. St. Mary Azek wasn't Cornish at all. In fact, he's a Breton uh, import and, and is much better remembered in Brittany than he is in Cornwall. Um, but there is this very interesting late medieval um, uh, saint's play in the Cornish language, very closely um, based on a Breton play um, that comes over at some point in the late 15th century. Uh, it also, and this was the thing that really interested me for my doctorate, I have to say, it also features a tyrannical king called Tudor, um, which is actually very interesting in the context of, uh, obviously, the reign of Henry VII. But anyway, the, the text of this play was only rediscovered in modern times, um, by an Anglo-Indian administrator who retired to the hills um, sometime in the 19th century in uh, wherever it was, um, uh, some hill station, to translate this text um, from medieval Cornish into English. And such were the things you could do in the Indian civil service in those days. The point is that when Nicholas Roscarrick was making his list of saints 
in the early 17th century, he didn't know that that play had ever existed, even though it had been performed only a few years previously. Now, it seems that once the devotional apparatus was banned, um, the memory of that saint pretty quickly faded away. Saint Illich is another example, somebody else we don't know a great deal about, other than the fact that she was Irish. Um, She sailed over uh, from Ireland to Cornwall on a harrow, um, but the tree by the Holy Well, uh, which was dedicated to her, had been cut down by Nicholas Ruscarrack's day, and the path to what had once been her chapel had grown over and been returned to um, agricultural tillage. Now, wells were often filled up with rubbish during the Reformation, um, either as a deliberate act of desecration um, or possibly more simply out of convenience, just a convenient way of getting rid of stuff that you don't want. When they were still visited by local people, and some were visited in search of healing, it strikes me that whatever remedy those waters offered had become divorced from the saint's cult, which had once included those sites within the rhythm of parish life. So the practice, perhaps, had not changed, but the meaning had. Well, as I've just hinted, language is an important part of my story. Now, we enter controversial territory here. Cornish, um, as a language, is, as I've said, it's closely allied to Breton. Um, You can speak bits of medieval Cornish to Bretons and be understood. They look at you in a rather puzzled sort of way because you're saying slightly the wrong words, but they they do understand what you're saying. Rather less closely um, to Welsh, from which it began to separate in the 6th century. Now, Cornish was already in retreat in Cornwall by the 12th century, but it took a very long time to decline. So you can still find it, antiquarians still find it being spoken um, in the 1700s, Um, But by that time, the use of the language has become confined to the fishermen and the farmers um, of the far western parts of Cornwall. We have interesting examples of the fishermen of Penzance in the far west of Cornwall uh, speaking English in their their daily lives, um, but actually speaking Cornish when they go to sea. Um, And so the, the, the children, the boys, learn Cornish as a kind of fishing language, but then speak English when they come back on shore. Now, revivalists, um, for there are some, will tell you that the Cornish language never died. It carried on in in family use uh, all the way through. It must have been a handful of families, but perhaps this is true. But those revivalists have also had real linguistic problems deciding on which variant of the language to speak to each other. Um, There's the 18th century version of the language, which, of course, is real enough. It was spoken by flesh and blood people. But it was also polluted by that time by lots of English incursions. A lot of the kind of medieval grammar had fallen away. Um, Cornish words were declining um, according to kind of English models. And so scholars don't really like that version and have reconstructed a purified version of the language. This was going on in the 1920s and 1930s, which, of course, is linguistically more correct. Uh, But it's also been open to the accusation that it's artificial. Um, And although it's pure, it was never actually spoken in that precise form um, by anybody. Um, Pronunciation of a language presumably has to be guessed at. We have one little hint um, in Richard Carew's survey of Cornwall of 1602 that to an English speaker, Cornish sounded less nasty than Welsh did. But quite what he meant by that, um, we don't know. Cornish was a language of a late medieval liturgy, but not of scripture nor of theology. It was much more often spoken than written down, hence the need, as I've just explained, to kind of back-project 
missing nouns and verbs from cognate languages. And this is what scholars were spending a lot of their time doing in the 1920s and 1930s. The, the preterite tense of a particular verb wasn't recorded anywhere in any of the manuscript literature. Um, and so um, they would first of all turn to Breton, and then they would turn to Welsh, and then they would cast their net more widely to try and find a word that was, that was acceptable um, to kind of construct as an alternative. Um, manuscript evidence for this language is pretty scant um, and there's nothing in print from my period from the 16th um, and early 17th century other than a handful of half understood phrases uh, the most famous of these being again something that was reported by Richard Carew which is when a, a, uh, he, spoke in, uh, he spoke in English to somebody in the west of Cornwall and this chap said to him in Cornish um, I don't understand English at least that's what Carew thought he said. In fact, we now realise that he was saying, I won't speak English, which is something subtly different. Modern day Cornish bards uh, dress up in robes uh, designed in the 1890s by an emigre from Bavaria, copying the Welsh Eisteddfod. But there is no recorded equivalent of the poetry, which is such a prominent feature of traditional Welsh and Irish culture, and such an important historical source for historians of both those territories. However, I think there was some room within the pre-Reformation Latin mass for the paternoster or the creed in Cornish. There was also, and this is really important, the sacred drama in Cornish. Not just individual saints' plays, miracle plays like the one I've just referred to, but whole cycles of plays from the creation to the redemption of the world. And these have received really very little attention uh, from historians outside very specialist, either Cornish-speaking hist historical circles, uh, which is a pretty rarefied atmosphere, or um, uh, 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 people who are interested in, in sacred drama uh, sometimes have a, a chapter on the Cornish sacred drama um, uh, as a kind of also round. But I think that they are, they are fascinating documents and deserve to be uh, um, much more widely known and much better available um, in translation. There's some tempting evidence that the Cornish mystery plays were still going on in the later 16th and possibly the very early 17th century. Again, it's Carew who seems to speak of them in 1602 in the present tense. But again, by that time, the link between those plays and the official church had been severed, and they disappeared um, a, a, a couple of decades later, so far as we can tell. And we can tell this through looking at Borough and Church Warden's accounts, about which more in a moment. And those accounts imply that when the, those Cornish plays stopped being played, they were replaced by English imports, Robin Hood plays and Morris dancers. Well, as for the Gospels, there was no uh, translation until 2004, when a Cornish New Testament was presented to a slightly bewildered Archbishop of Canterbury in Truro Cathedral. Now, of course, this contrasts very dramatically with the Welsh scriptures, which began to appear in Edward VI's reign and had matured into a full Bible by 1588. But there is an obvious parallel with Ireland, where, as many of the people in this room know far better than I do, the Bible and the catechism weren't translated, at least into printed Gaelic, until the early 17th century, um, too late for Anglicanism in Ireland, it's been argued. So, at the crucial point in the mid to late 16th century, no Cornish Bible, no Irish Bible. 
But I suspect the reasons were different, looking from the perspective of the central Tudor state. The majority view amongst those conquering and colonising Elizabethan Ireland was antagonistic towards the Irish language, even if some individual clergy, and maybe Elizabeth herself, were more sympathetic, and I suspect that Elizabeth may have been more sympathetic. The Irish language, in Pat Palmer's phrase, was viewed as a contaminant of English civility. Cornish was not politically dangerous, but it was spoken by far fewer people than Irish, and most Cornish people, so far as we can tell, spoke some English, and in the east of the county, they all did. Translating the scriptures, which might of course have saved the Cornish language, just wasn't worth it. But critically, there was no Cornish equivalent of the Welsh humanist evangelical scholars like William Salisbury to do the work of translating once the colleges, the secular colleges, had been closed down. Now, another reason for the assault on those colleges in Cornwall, I think, was the fact that they were very, very closely identified with the sacred drama, this Catholic, uh, popish, superstitious sacred drama in the Cornish language. Now, it's interesting that an early draft of the 1549 rebel grievances, um, I mentioned that rebellion a moment ago, mentioned the idea of a prayer book in Cornish. There's a kind of Cornish contingent somewhere at the back of that rebellion saying, whereof we, the Cornish men, understand no English. But we only know that because there's a kind of shadow of that demand in later government replies to that demand. In other words, that demand for a Cornish liturgy was dropped from the final list of grievances that was submitted to the government, uh, the Duke of Somerset um, and Edward VI, simply diluted by the men of Devon, for instance, because the Cornish um, meet up with the men from Devon and march um, off towards, um, well, presumably off towards London. We're actually not terribly clear where they were going. Um, But certainly that demand for the Cornish liturgy, which is there early on, um, gets dropped. Well, elsewhere, I've argued that there are good reasons for considering Cornwall as a distinctive part of England rather than as a separate Celtic territory. Uh, These reasons include its remarkably large number of MPs in the House of Commons, 44, in fact, MPs by the end of Elizabeth's reign, making it the most grossly overrepresented county um, in the House of Commons, uh, uh, proportionate to population. The crown lands of the Duchy of Cornwall, of course, which is still going and still maintaining the income of the Prince of Wales to this day. But whatever you believe about medieval Celtic Cornwall, the Reformation clearly played a major role in negotiating, renegotiating its place within the Tudor body politic. Now, what makes me uneasy, and you do see this in the historiography, is the creation of a racial or ethnic category to explain identity and behaviour, that people rebelled against the crown or stuck firm to their Catholicism because they were Cornish and defending their Cornishness. Now, I've not seen convincing 16th century evidence that people thought in that way, although 19th and 20th century invented traditions trying to locate themselves in history seem to assume that a collective local identity did exist. Now, this whole question of language, of course, raises very interesting problems about early modern identity. Did a Tudor Cornish speaker from, say, the Penwith Peninsula identify 
with a citizen from Lordston in the east, where the language hadn't been spoken for centuries, as a fellow Cornishman because he lived in the same county, or would he see him as English because of the language difference? What role did the Welsh scriptures play in creating one Welsh identity, given what I'm told is the distinctiveness of Salisbury's dialect? People in this room can answer this question. To what extent was the Irish language a vehicle of Irish Catholic identity at a time when the English and the Scots were planting different brands of Protestantism? Hugh O'Neill, of course, famously reached beyond language as the defining feature of Irishness in an attempt to, uh, to draw old English families into the faith and fatherland ideology that we've had referred to, whilst, of course, conducting a parallel campaign in the Irish language. Well, anyway, on to the second of my case studies, Yorkshire, another part of the kingdom relatively remote from central government with a distinct local culture and a reputation for residual Catholicism in the wake of the official Reformation. Like the southwest, the northern counties were governed for the Tudors by lieutenants whom they had raised up rather than by their ancient ruling families. So the Russell Earls of Bedford and Sir Walter Raleigh replaced the ancient Courtneys and the Arundels in the West Country, while Northern England was governed by the Earl of Sussex, previously, of course, a Viceroy of Ireland, and the Earl of Huntingdon. Like Cornwall, Yorkshire witnessed a pro-Yorkist rebellion against the regime of King Henry VII. Two further and thoroughly Catholic uprisings followed in Yorkshire in the 16th century, the Pilgrimage of Grace and the rising of the Northern Earls in 1569. And it was the pilgrimage that led to the reorganisation of the Council of the North, which I think was intended to support Sussex and Huntingdon rather than to encroach on their power. Catholicism was embedded in the Yorkshire landscape. Now, this was less to do with local saints, although there were important local saints, cults, St John of Beverley, for instance, than it was with the cloistered religious life. It wasn't until I moved to Yorkshire that it dawned on me just how destructive physically and psychologically Henry VIII's Reformation must have been. There is currently a tendency to play down the early Reformation, pointing out quite rightly King Henry VIII's intense dislike of Martin Luther and the survival for the moment of the Latin Mass uh, and even the chantries uh, and prayers for the dead, although Henry VIII had those in his sights. But the sheer scale of the monastic ruins at Rivo and Kirkham, Jervo and Byland illustrate the impact the closure of the Yorkshire houses must have had on the communities which clung to them. Fountains Abbey was built so solidly that it looks like it could still be repaired if the National Trust wanted to do so and put back into use. The city of York used to be dominated by two great cathedrals, the Minster and St Mary's Abbey. Now, the second of these was destroyed by Henry VIII. The abbot's house turned into King's Manor, where the Council of the North sat and where some fortunate colleagues of mine now have their offices. And if any, if any of you have read C.J. Sansom's novel, Sovereign, that's where it's set, in the grounds of St Mary's Abbey. For Robert Ask and the thousands of northerners who donned their pilgrims' badges of the Five Wounds and marched south in 1536, the dissolution of the monasteries wasn't an abstract theological issue like the infection of Lutheranism at court and the University of Cambridge. 
It was a direct assault on the culture of the local community, imposed from the centre by a regime which seemed to be leading the monarchy into tyranny. When their protest failed, Yorkshire was left with some huge parishes and comparatively few Protestant preachers. Now, in some cases, like Bolton Abbey in the West Riding and Howden Minster in the East, part of the old abbey or college buildings remained grudgingly in use as the parish church. Elsewhere, they were stripped of their lead and their fanciest stone, then left to rot. Roof timbers were taken down and used as fuel in the pits which were dug to melt the lead. The ingots were then shipped down river to York and to Hull for onward transportation to London and the Netherlands. Well, the case of Yorkshire illustrates what has long been recognised as one of the great social changes brought about by the English Reformation, which is the transfer of land. I don't want to get caught up in the rise of the gentry thesis. Whether or not the Marxists were right in arguing that this explains the English component of the British Civil Wars, there is no denying the massive scale of the estates changing hands, maybe a quarter of the land in England, and how the secondary transfer of that land from the crown to loyal gentry through lease or sale reordered the English social structure. The landed income of the religious houses in 1535 has been estimated at £175,000 per annum, when the income of the crown was less than 150000 To fund Henry VIII's uh, military campaigns against Scotland and France in the 1540s, about two-thirds of that land was pretty rapidly sold off. Now, generally, it seems it was the existing landed gentry families who benefited, rather than a new class of bourgeois entrepreneurs. But the Shire gentry thereby acquired a vested interest in the permanence of Reformation, which led to some awkward squirming, manoeuvring and wriggling during Mary's reign when the idea of returning this land to the church was heavily pushed by Cardinal Poole. What's interesting in a Yorkshire perspective is the degree of difference between the two great acts of resistance to the Reformation, 1536 and 1569. They looked rather similar. They both marched under the banner of the Five Wounds of Christ. Richard Norton, who was the Sheriff of Yorkshire, was actually a living link between the two since he had marched with the pilgrims more than 40 years before, in 1569. But their superficial similarity conceals the fact that they were actually very different in two significant ways. It's actually the second of the Risings that's the more feudal. The Earls of Westmoreland and Northumberland in 1569 raised their tenants and retainers into revolt. There's a relative absence of the gentry, except those who had a direct link to the Earls, and this may have been affected by their purchase of monastic land. Sir Thomas Gargrave, who was Vice President of the Council of the North in 1572, offered a pretty gloomy assessment of the religious allegiance of the Yorkshire gentry. Protestants, 43. Catholics, 40. Doubtful or neuter, 38. But the great majority of those gentry supported the Crown, contrasting with what happened in 1536. Now, we can detect the actions of ordinary people in 1569, the parishes of Kirby Moorside up in the North York Moors, taking advantage of the uprising to throw over their communion table and throw out their prayer books. But there was nothing like the groundswell of popular opinion that you saw in 1536. 
And the second of those differences, I think, is the ideological radicalism of the 1569 rebels, which is not at all like the Pilgrimage of Grace. Quoting from Northumberland's interrogation, he's asked by Lord Hunston, what was the intent and meaning of the rebellion? Northumberland answers, answer, our first object in assembling was the reformation of religion and preservation of the person of the Queen of Scots as next heir, failing issue of Her Majesty, which causes, I believe, were greatly favoured by most of the noblemen of the realm. Well, he proved to be very wrong about most of the noblemen of the realm. But would they really have been content with that, with the preservation of Mary, Queen of Scots, as the next heir? Well, I rather doubt it. In a real sense, the foot soldiers of the 1569 rebellion were marching under false pretenses. What they have seemed to have been told was a loyal Catholic protest was actually an attempt to release the Queen of Scots with Spanish help. Westmoreland and Northumberland didn't say anything about the Queen of Scots um, to their humble followers. Applying the theme of this workshop, New Directions, back to England, some brief reflections. What are the new directions in religion in early modern England and why? Well, the first of these, I think, isn't so new, but this is the focus on the locality, the parish or the diocese. This began with an older generation of Reformation historians, Dickens and Scarisbrick, taken much further by Christopher Haig, Eamon Duffy, Peter Marshall. The why question is a very interesting one, and it does, I think, come down to the richness of the archives. And I'm, I'm, given what's been said earlier this afternoon, I must apologise for this, but the archives are very, very rich for the English Reformation, particularly in the form of church wardens' accounts deposited, of course, since the 1960s in county record offices rather than um, chests in, in parish vestries where they've been mouldering away uh, since the 16th century, making them accessible. And, of course, wills. The same can be said for wills. Um, now, the accessibility, the greater accessibility um, of church wardens' accounts and wills offered the possibility of testing out the old assumptions on both the Protestant and the Catholic side we could see what individual communities were doing when they were told to buy a Bible uh, or told to stop buying candles to put in front of shrines. The trend also, I think, reflects and reflected the influence within a Reformation environment of the rise of social history, recovering, as far as we could, the individual and the collective experiences of ordinary people, most of them illiterate and unrecorded, living through momentous religious change. It seems to have taught us overall that communities were remarkably willing to obey, even in Catholic parts of the country like Cornwall and Yorkshire. Now, explaining why they obeyed is much more difficult. Uh, it can't simply come down to intimidation and coercion. It strikes me that that's a task for the rising generation of historians to take on. Um, everything I've said is a very English story, I think. So far as I know, information from the late Professor Sir Glanmore Williams, there's only one surviving set of Welsh church wardens' accounts, which I think is Swansea, um, which isn't particularly Welsh, perhaps. Um, so in the sense of that, that intricate reconstruction of parish life, you can't really do the same for Wales um, as you can, can for England. But the fact that this is, a, this is still a very much a current approach is illustrated by the enormous success of one of Eamon Duffy's recent books, The Voices of Moorbath, um, working on a remarkably detailed um, set of church wardens' accounts for one parish, a Dartmoor parish, um, allowing Duffy almost to hear the voice of his parish, the parish priest, Sir Christopher Tricky, um, thinking his way through a reformation which he clearly didn't welcome but decided to see his parishioners through. Mentioning Duffy, 
leads me to another new direction, which is the Catholic fight back. Um, the rich detail of Church Warden's accounts, augmented um, by the sort of, actually currently the uh, sort of material culture that we've just been hearing about, allows the reader to imagine the full extent of what was lost, the sheer cultural vandalism of the Reformation. Numerous books and articles published over the last few years have been taking on and taking apart the established church and Whiggish triumphalist approach to the Reformation, which was dominant for so long and had, it, had its roots, of course, in the Reformation itself. English Catholic history, for a long time, was country house-focused, recusant in approach, localist, sometimes parochial and open to the charge of snobbery. The recovery of the vibrancy of pre-Reformation English Catholicism, its organic integration with society, the inexpressible comfort it offered to the dying and the bereaved, its essential humaneness, even confession is now seen as a positive thing, all of these points argued with such rhetorical skill by people like Eamon Duffy can leave us bewildered as to why there was a Reformation at all. What was Henry VIII thinking of? The late medieval church portrayed by Haig's English Reformations was a thoroughly going concern well served by many thousands of priests and not that much troubled by heresy. Intellectual historians have alerted us to the currents of humanist renewal moving through the English church before Martin Luther posted up his theses. And of course, Thomas More is a particular figure in this. Um, hence uh, my question to Jim about Erasmus. Uh, the most recent manifestation of this has been a huge resurgence of interest in the uh, reign of Mary Tudor, uh, Bloody, tu Bloody Mary, as we are now are not allowed to call her, since Eamon Duffy's latest book, Fires of Faith, has even made a pitch for the fairness of the persecution of Protestants. Um, it was horrible, but it was also understandable by the standards of the time, and it might well have worked, given just a couple more years. When I started work at York five years ago, it was pretty difficult for me to set my students' interesting work on the reign of Mary. Now, the re-Catholicisation of England is the topic of many essays and dissertations. And some of this interest, of course, is also coming in from the gender side. Um, if gender is such an important tool of analysis for the reign of Queen Elizabeth, um, then why wouldn't it be for her sister? Well, we seem to be left with a very political-looking English Reformation, decided by the Crown and senior churchmen and imposed with a surprising amount of compliance, not because of any great desire for religious change, but because of the structures of parish and community life and the way that, in which those reinforced the obedience that was being preached by the central state. Now, Protestants haven't entirely been left out of the picture, thanks to the work of Dermot McCulloch and Alec Ryrie, which helps us, or at least has helped me, to understand the spiritual fire that was in the evangelical revival. Maybe the next generation of PhDs will take that further. And the third, and this is the final point I want to make, the third of my new directions, is culture. The broadening out of ecclesiastical history into a consideration of the relationship between religion, society and identity, both individual and national. Well, this is clearly a big topic, so all I can do by way of conclusion is mention a couple of books and themes. We were talking earlier about Puritanism, and Puritanism is a good example. Culture offered us the route out of arid debates about the existence or not of a Puritan choir in the House of Commons, or whether we should be using the term Puritan at all. Christopher Durston and Jacqueline Eales edited a collection of essays 
a while back exploring the culture of English Puritanism from the 1560s to 1700, its spiritualization of the household, its ways of dying, reading the Bible and singing psalms. Now, I find this a more convincing explanation of the popular appeal of evangelical Protestantism, which was clearly very genuine, than double predestination or justification by faith alone. The work of David Cressy and Ronald Hutton has offered another way into the meaning of the Reformation beyond the parish church, universities, seminaries and so forth through consideration of uh, perceptions of time and the calendar. So bonfires and bells showed us how English parish life acquired a new rhythm to replace the old saints' days in the Elizabethan and Jacobean period, the ringing of bells for Elizabeth's succession day, the lighting of Guy Fawkes' bonfires. Whereas Ron Hutton has offered us a complete breakdown of the English ritual year with boy bishops and mamas plays and a whole lot more besides. And Hutton is a good example, it strikes me, of a Reformation-era historian taking anthropology seriously, carrying the flame which was passed on by the pioneers of the 1970s. Finally, from time to place. I can't talk about Alexandra Walsham's new book on Reformation and the English landscape because it's not out yet, Um, but I have heard her speak about it, and it promises to be what we have been waiting for for a very long time a detailed consideration of the meanings which people invested in the physical features of the landscape and how these were altered by the process of religious reform. Under the why heading, I think it's worth noting that there's currently a real public interest in the physical landscape and why it looks the way it does. There are celebratory TV programmes on every night back home. But there's also now a scholarly but accessible book to follow on from W.G. Hoskins's Making of the English Landscape, and that is Francis Pryor's Making of the British Landscape. And this must be popular because I've noticed on Amazon you can now download a Kindle edition, which I think is the mark of a successful book these days. So where does this leave us for, the, for what, when I was studying for my doctorate, was called the new history of the British Isles, not so new now perhaps, but the attempt to break away from national or even nationalist historiographies and write history that is sensitive to the interactions of the various component parts of this archipelago, whether that history wants to tell a big integrated story or is focused on the individual nation. Well, I guess we're doing this afternoon exactly what we should be doing, comparing um, our national historiographies to identify common themes. And of course, there are very particular reasons for doing that when it comes to Ireland, given the impact of the other two kingdoms on its history in the early modern period, the war, plantations, and competing Protestant faiths which the English and the Scots brought with them. That's where I'll stop. Thank you very much.